No drug exemplifies the principle that drugs sometimes work better than aspirin. In the right setting, it can literally save lives, prevent heart attacks, prevent strokes, but it can also cause serious bleeding, bleeding that requires hospitalization and blood transfusions, intracranial hemorrhaging, which is bleeding into the brain, and usually it's just as bad as it sounds. Fortunately, the risk of these bleeds is low, but they're unpredictable and the risk is never zero. So who's a good candidate for a daily aspirin? In this two-part episode, we'll talk about that. We'll consider what the FDA says about aspirin. We'll discuss why a myriad of guidelines can't agree on who should take a daily aspirin. And more importantly, we'll talk about the data that underlies all those recommendations. By the end, you may still have some questions, but you'll know a lot more too. You'll know a lot more about aspirin, but you'll also know how to better think about balancing the risk of a medicine with its benefits. Because the question, who should take a daily aspirin, is a great example of how drugs sometimes work. It seems like such a simple question, really. Who should take a daily aspirin? In practice, we sometimes call the lower dose baby aspirin, as if to make it seem safer. After all, if it's dosed for babies, how harmful could it possibly be? But the simplicity of the question belies the complexity of the answer. Many experts, armed with the same data, continue to disagree on who should take a daily aspirin. Twice in the last two decades, 2003 and 2014, the FDA convened panels to review the data. Twice, they issued decrees that basically say, we're not sure, and they left it to all of us to decide. And by all of us, I mean literally each one of us. As probably everyone listening to this podcast knows, aspirin is available over the counter. No prescription needed. No training needed to decide to start taking a daily aspirin. A few years ago, we published a national survey which found that nearly half of patients regularly taking aspirin had not consulted a health professional about that decision. Almost half. At this point, let me pause for a second and say that there's one group of patients that we all agree should generally be taking a daily aspirin. Patients who have already had a first heart attack or stroke. Use of aspirin in these patients is referred to as secondary prevention. Secondary meaning the patient already had a first event and we're trying to prevent a second event from occurring. In practice, this group is a little broader than just patients with a history of heart attack or stroke. There also are some important exceptions to be considered based on what exactly caused the heart attack or stroke. If the stroke was caused by bleeding into the brain, for example, we wouldn't want to use aspirin. But most strokes are not caused by bleeding, and in general, the data for secondary prevention of most heart attacks and strokes is clear. We should be using aspirin in these patients. Primary prevention is different. Primary prevention refers to using aspirin to try and prevent that first heart attack or stroke. And this is by far the bigger group. Just think about all the friends and acquaintances you have that have not had a heart attack and stroke versus those who have. Yeah, more than 9 out of 10 Americans fall into this category of primary prevention. And this is where all the debate and disagreement is focused. The controversy about aspirin for primary prevention is why the FDA convened panels in 2003 and 2014, and it's been the source of disagreeing guidelines for over three decades. Why? To understand this controversy, you need to understand a little bit about the, who the enemy is. The thing aspirin is fighting, atherosclerosis. Atherosclerosis has a lot of aliases, 
coronary artery disease, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, peripheral vascular disease, cerebral vascular disease. It's all the same thing. Sometimes we forget that all of our arteries are connected. The cerebral arteries in the brain aren't really any different than the coronary arteries in the heart or the peripheral arteries in the legs. They're just in different locations and they're everywhere, which makes sense. All parts of the body need blood and arteries are how we get it there. And if I am more susceptible to atherosclerosis because I smoke or have high cholesterol or diabetes or hypertension, then atherosclerosis is happening everywhere in all of those arteries. Okay, so atherosclerosis happens everywhere, but what is it? In short, atherosclerosis is damage that happens inside the wall of the arteries. Not surprisingly, what causes that damage is complicated. We can boil down four decades of research and a couple Nobel Prizes to say that the main culprit in atherosclerosis is lipoproteins and our body's response to those lipoproteins. Most of you have heard of lipoproteins, but probably they've never been explained. The primary lipoprotein is LDL, low density lipoprotein. If you've ever had your cholesterol checked, hopefully someone told you what your LDL cholesterol was. It's often called the bad cholesterol, whereas HDL, high density lipoprotein, is often called the good cholesterol. But scientifically, that doesn't make much sense. Cholesterol is cholesterol. It can't be bad or good. But lipoproteins are more complicated than just the cholesterol they carry, and they can be bad or good. And LDL is, in fact, the bad one. That number that someone may have given you, your LDL cholesterol, that is simply the cholesterol carried around in your blood inside of your low-density lipoproteins. And that's important to understand because what the artery wall sees, what causes atherosclerosis is lipoproteins. In fact, free cholesterol and fat don't float around in our blood. They're transported inside of lipoproteins. And from the standpoint of atherosclerosis, LDL, the bad lipoprotein is the key. Why is LDL the key? Because it's a primary lipoprotein that gets out of your blood and into your artery wall. And as that happens, as this particle delivers its cholesterol and fat into our artery wall, our body, our body notices it. It doesn't like it, and it starts sending in the troops. And like so much of our biologic response to things our body doesn't like, the troops we send in are inflammatory cells. Conceptually, this isn't much different than how we fight viruses or bacteria. But unlike the inflammation we experience with pneumonia or a skin infection, this inflammatory response in our arteries happens slowly, over decades, rather than hours or days. But the result, while slower, is surprisingly similar. And what we end up with is a kind of inflammatory pus sitting in our artery wall. And it starts early. It was pathologists several decades ago, the doctors who do autopsies, who noticed how early atherosclerosis begins. Before the era of advanced imaging, Autopsies performed on people killed in automobile accidents or by homicide or otherwise died early deaths found evidence of this early arterial inflammation in young adults in their 20s and 30s and sometimes even down into the teens. And more than that, things like smoking and diabetes and high LDL cholesterol levels predicted more of this inflammatory damage at these young ages. Just like those same factors predict the risk of heart attack and stroke in our 60s, 70s, and 80s. And as the years go by, from our 20s to our 80s, this inflammatory process matures. Healthy lifestyle 
Appropriate medications can slow it down, and in many cases, even reverse the early stages. In fact, it's never too late to stop smoking, to lose weight, to exercise, and to take your cholesterol blood pressure medications. But left unchecked, this arterial inflammatory process becomes more organized. Early inflammatory lesions, the pus, mature and takes on a kind of permanence. Fibrosis and scarring replace early arterial inflammation and aspects of the process become irreversible. The early inflammatory lesions that might have developed in our 20s and 30s become mature atherosclerotic plaques, the defining pathology of atherosclerosis. And once they start forming, they get bigger. A process that started in the artery wall now begins to expand into the lumen of the artery, the conduit of the artery where blood is flowing. Now we get some blockage to the flow of blood. Get enough blockage and we start seeing symptoms. A twinge of chest pain, or maybe a vague pain in my legs with physical exertion. But more commonly, there are no symptoms at all. No symptoms until one day this atherosclerotic plaque fails. Maybe the plaque ruptures spectacularly, blowing wide open like a vascular volcano. But more likely, it develops a small fissure, a crack, more like a small earthquake opening up a fissure in the Earth's crust. But an opening and a failure nonetheless, and one plenty big enough for cells from the blood to get down into the core of that plaque, that fatty inflammatory core filled with fibrosis and scarring and what's left of the vascular pus. Among the cells that get down into that plaque are red blood cells and platelets, the core constituents of a blood clot. And a blood clot is exactly what happens. It might be the big one. A blood clot that completely occludes the artery where the plaque broke open. If that's a coronary or cerebral artery, then there is a cause of my heart attack or stroke. Or it may not be the big one. It may be a small blood clot. In fact, it may be so small, you don't even know what happened. The red blood cells and platelets, along with other proteins in the blood, might just plug up that fissure, like spackle on a cracked kitchen tile. Or they might plug the fissure and then just extend a little ways into the lumen of the artery, where the blood is flowing. The blockage may be small, and the resulting symptoms so mild they go completely unnoticed or easily dismissed. A bit of heartburn. Maybe I shouldn't have eaten those leftovers in the fridge last night. Or a sore shoulder or arm might be dismissed as being from too much gardening or having slept on it funny the night before. But just like the proverbial small quake that precedes the big one, the big one might be just around the corner. And here is where we can turn our story back to aspirin and start connecting the dots. Aspirin is an antiplatelet drug and platelets are one of those key blood cells that form clots. And a blood clot is what causes most heart attacks and strokes by blocking the flow of blood in coronary or cerebral arteries. Not surprising that an aspirin, an antiplatelet drug, can treat and maybe even prevent heart attacks and strokes. But don't forget the other side of aspirin, the adverse effects side. It can cause major bleeding. Use aspirin for four or five days or even four or five weeks to treat heart attack or stroke and the risk of bleeding remains pretty low because the exposure is fairly brief. But what about four or five months or four or five years? How do the adverse events of major bleeding balance out against the benefits of reducing heart attacks and strokes? For that, we need to understand the clinical trials. And once we understand those, all those confusing guidelines and FDA advice will make a lot more sense. 
and we'll be able to understand and make up our own minds about who should take a daily aspirin.